If you love to travel, you love cool experiences, I think you're going to love Viator. If you haven't heard, Viator is the world's leading travel experience marketplace. They've got everything from simple tours to extreme adventures, all the cool and interesting stuff in between as well. Well, this year, my wife and kids are making one of my bucket list trips come true. We're going to Sun Valley. So we're going to fly to Sun Valley, and I tell you, the thought of bringing skis, poles, boots, snowboards, everything overwhelming. But that's where Viator came in. They made this incredibly easy. I just opened the Viator app, searched Sun Valley, and boom, Viator arranges a first-class experience, custom ski, snowboard, and boot fittings and tickets delivered right to the condo. It's pretty amazing. Experiences are what we love most about travel. They create these long-lasting moments and make memories that will last a lifetime. Just download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking. One app, over 300,000 experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. My name is Tracy Ariel and I am unapologetically Canadian. Hello, Tracy Ariel is here, and this is April Wednesday, April 15th, and this is uh, week five of the quarantine, and uh, at this point, we're kind of used to the usual routine. Uh, daily walks are on the agenda, taking care of, um, trying to create a positive mindset. Basically, we've come into the time when we are no longer on vacation. We're now trying to figure out, okay, this is the new reality. Uh, all of the events have been cancelled in Montreal until the end of summer, basically, all of the really big events. Uh, we've also found out that uh, probably farmers markets are going to be continuing, so that's good for uh, the co-op that I'm part of, because we can now do, a, we could probably do a regular uh, farmers market, uh, and we'll be doing uh, deliveries starting uh, in two weeks, so that's, uh, things are on the agenda. Uh, I've been, uh, I've been, I've been launching a new profile, your business. So if you're an entrepreneur and you want to, uh, work on some anecdotes about why your business is important and, uh, how you can actually talk about those stories in your, uh, in your marketing that will be happening in, uh, starting at the end of May. And so I'll be launching that, uh, starting also in two weeks. So basically, uh, life is now back to almost, I mean, obviously it's not normal because we are not allowed to, we're still doing social distancing. We can't actually do parties. We're doing parties by Zoom. It's not quite as pleasant socially as it is when you can see everybody that you love in person, but it's come, it, it's, it's, it's more regular in that uh, nobody, everybody's trying to get back to work in whatever the new reality of work is. We're trying to figure out how business people like me and you uh, and creators are trying to figure out, okay, how can we serve our clients and continue serving them and chain, pivot our business so that we can work uh, more online and more virtually since we're not able to do some of the wonderful events that, uh, that we're used to doing. And I think that uh, like I said, there are three things that have been really important now. Uh, we're no longer, I've, I've gained 15 pounds since the beginning of this. And so uh, as of yesterday, I started going back to normal eating. I'm not allowed to have chips uh, more than once a, once a week again. Uh, I'm no longer drinking wine every night. I'm having wine only on the weekends. Uh, basically, I'm trying to be the person that I want to be regularly. Again, it's not, it, the basically the the 
I'm still being compassionate with myself in that I'm trying to take time every day to play crib with the kids and to um, take time to read and do all of those things that are very calm and uh, personal. Uh, so I'm not working uh, more than 12 hours a day regularly uh, during this time. And those are the kinds of habits that I would like to keep moving forward even after this crisis is over. Uh, but uh, positive mindset, I'm now thinking, okay, I'm redoing my business plans. All right, what are my plans now? What kind, how can we continue moving forward and developing the businesses despite having to uh, deal with social distancing as a way of life probably for the next two years? Uh, I mean, yes, we may be able to do some things in that time, but things are never going back the way they were before. Uh, at least, well, no, I shouldn't say never. Of course, and once we have a vaccine, everything will go, many things will go back the way they were before. But my, me personally, I will have grown and I will have created new habits. And so now I'm talking, I'm, I'm thinking and writing down the things that I actually want to continue as new habits. And so I hope you are doing that as well. Uh, I'd like to encourage you to think about uh, positive mindset and to uh, think about who you want to be in the world and how you want to serve people and then pivot your business so that that's what you do. Uh, more than anything, we all get to be ourselves. And uh, this week's interview is with a fabulous uh, friend of mine who is a uh, 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 a genealogist and she's a researcher and she's a historian and she has a fabulous um, story about how she's developed her creativity in her life. Uh, that's Dorothy Nixon and uh, I'm so looking forward to introducing you to her and I think that a lot of people will be spending, uh, you know, now that you can't go into work, maybe this is the time to do a little bit of extra. Hi Dorothy. Hi Tracy. Nice to be here. <laughs> as they say. It's great to have you. Um, now, you know the question we're going to finish with, but I thought that we would start with you talking a little bit about why you became a writer and how you uh, started off on this uh, journey that you've been, because you've been a writer for a very long time. What made you a, a writer? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't inspired. I wasn't inspired early on because I remember my teachers would always give you good marks because I was a goody goody and I, I would always get A no matter what, but I remember sending a composition into a so-called external marker and it coming back with a terrible mark. So that would have turned me off being a writer. <laughs> but uh, I guess I went to college. Well, it just doesn't take much, right, when you're young to turn you off anything you want to be. I went to university and uh, by the third year I t got accepted in the more advanced courses. And I was uh, very good, although I got only a, a B plus in, in the advanced third year seminar and I asked the teacher why and he said you came in the best writer you came out the best writer but you didn't learn anything <laughs> no so oh. was, I actually took that to heart I thought that was a very good thing to say yeah in other words you're here to improve you're not here to it's not a competition really yeah that was professor Malik who was Katie Malik's husband uh, father <laughs> yeah so then uh, what happened? How did I become a writer? I just couldn't stop writing. That's why I had to write. That's, it just had to come out when I had little kids, if I was nervous. Well, and you did live television oh, yeah, news for a while, fun. right? I actually really enjoyed that. I, was, I worked in radio. You were, for a while, you were a production. That's right. 
a production assistant yeah. back in the days of live TV, where it was very adrenaline inducing. So I really liked that because you had to be on the ball, you're watching the time, you're telling the person to stretch it, to make it smaller. And by the end, you're your heart's palpitating. A lot of PAs hated it, but I actually liked it. I was also floor manager once in live TV, the telephone. I really enjoyed that. So I might have missed my calling in that I might have been very good in these uh, high pressure aspects of TV and radio. But you know what? They're, they don't exist anymore, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> there's, there's no PAs anymore. There's no... Uh, well, and you're an indie writer because you published all of your books uh, yourself. You were an indie writer before the indie writer term really became sort of well known. You published your Nicholson book, I think. What? Uh, well, I guess you do that when no one was interested in my. It's just timing. No one just was interested. I think 20 years ago when I had them, people would have been interested, but they just weren't anymore because of the sort of reality of things. English Quebec stories just weren't appealing. I mean, it was really interesting, these letters. I had a hun- I had over 300 from the 1908-1913 period. That's very pivotal, Edwardian era, when the automobile changed everything, the Victrola, and a lot of immigration. So extremely important era, and those letters taught me all about that era. I knew nothing at the beginning. I sensed there was something in them, and I researched them to the nth degree, and now I'm pretty much an expert in Edwardian Montreal. Yeah. was lacking in my education history. I never took history. So, Well, and that period is becoming more popular as people realize, I mean, I guess it's the change of, of uh, um, millennia, the millennium change and the fact that we're in the early part of a new millennium again. People like to look yeah, at that period as, as another time when we were in great technological change. Exactly. And right when I was doing it, Downton Abbey started. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. There's always these ups and downs, eh? That's the whole thing. <laughs> La plus ça change. So you, you have to wonder. Uh, well, except ours is galloping technological change. It isn't a few things like the automobile and the movies. Uh, the flicker is changing uh, society. It's like a whole universe of things and it's galloping. So who knows, right? This is a whole different era. Uh, exponential change, I would call it, right? Um, but I mean, I think at, at that point, it probably would have looked like exponential change, too. But it just wasn't because every time you change technology, there's there's so many more levels of technology that can change. I think people don't didn't see it back then. So they have a big the automobile was a toy, you know, for wealthy men. The flickers were a fad. They didn't realize these would change society because um, they just built uh, you know, as people don't realize what new things can't see the future, the few who do become very rich. <laughs> I guess that's true. Um, books and many of your stories talk about women, which is uh, also underrepresented as a, a, a genre, really. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you focused on the stories about women? Every genealogist knows that it's harder finding info about your women ancestors because they were sort of invisible and um, in records and things. So I wrote about women because quite simply I identified. I read these letters. This is my husband's grandmother and his great aunts. He, who, he didn't know his grandmother, but he knew his great aunts. And I didn't re, I read it to a friend who, who said, oh, they sound so old-fashioned. But I didn't feel that way at all. I, found, I thought they found, sounded modern. So that's why I was intrigued. Right there I identified. And maybe I would have taken more yeah. history classes in, his, in college or in... If, I, if his, our history books had had any women 
characters to identify with because right away I identified and they just they they were the same as us they wanted it all <laughs> quite simply they wanted it all these young women they wanted to have work they wanted to have love you know they they were hoping for money they didn't necessarily <laughs> get any but they had good lives because they had good lives because they also had a firm uh, foundation of you work hard and you earn what you get you know it's not going to come to you so they had a lot of troubles but through a lot of economic troubles and health issues and no health insurance and everything and they still managed to have really good productive life so that's interesting too and they lived through these wonderful kings can you talk about some of your favorite people like one of just pick a person well it would just be my husband's great grandmother margaret nicholson because she's born in 1853. She's a Isle of Lewis Scott. I have her letter. She's devoted. So in 1913, there's a lot of letters because her husband, they need the money, has to go work far away in Cochrane, Ontario on the railway. And she's basically left alone. And uh, so it's hard managing a house in those days. You have to keep it warm. And they didn't have servants. They didn't have any help. Her daughters were away in Montreal studying uh, to be teachers, and one daughter was there, but she was also studying hard. Uh, so she had a, a rather tough life, but she was just such an interesting woman. She was for the suffragettes, and she wrote about it and arguments with her, uh, her uh, very conservative relative. She had big arguments, and she would write them down just like a script. I said this, and he said this, and I said, it's, I don't care about St. Paul. I don't live in the time of St. Paul. I don't milk cows. It was very, because <laughs> St. Paul was always brought up by anti-suffragists that women are supposed <laughs> to live in the home. So she just paints these beautiful word pictures sometimes. A lot of, the rest of it is a lot of high anxiety too. So because they, she's under a lot of economic stress, she writes things that maybe she wouldn't want to write. She often wrote at the end, burn this letter or don't let anyone see it. Better be careful with letters, write what you wrote. Oh, how ironic that, that was a woman who didn't want her letters. Careful. I have a lot. Burn this letter. Instead, it's on the internet. <laughs> burn this letter, especially if they're talking badly about uh, relatives, which often happens. They had a lot of family feuds. And, the, and interesting, she had a huge stress taking care of her own mother, a 92-year-old, totally Gaelic speaker. And they were arguing over who's taking care of her, and there was money involved. And it isn't too longer that in Richmond, Quebec, where these people are from, they started an old age home. And I wouldn't be surprised if part of the trouble they had with their feuds and problems they had taking care of the mother uh, resulted in the Wales home because they were friends with Mr. Wales, the, the tycoon who funded it. So, so you see, some things change and some things stay the same. She also hated the automobile. The neighbors were all getting autos, and she's going, oh, Mr. Montgomery has an automobile. Oh, I don't want one. Who's dangerous? Who would want one? Of course, she's saying that because they can't afford one, so she's appeasing her husband. And then, of course, what does she do? If she, anytime she gets a chance to get a lift, she gets a lift in the automobile. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's, it's all just a wonderful picture. <laughs> Very Downton Abbey. But it's middle class. Downton Abbey is the rich and the poor, but this is middle class. The totally different thing. The middle class, by definition, is insecure, right? Yeah. Well, they they want to rise to the up. They want to rise up. They want to make their fortunes, but they're always in danger of sliding down. So the anxiety of the middle class is kind of interesting. They were well connected, though. That was what kept them um, afloat. Was very good friends, very powerful friends. 
so they might have been broke all the time but with friends like that it didn't matter <laughs> well you do so that's my favorite character because yeah well and and um... i also like her because even though she went to church twice a day as most about dreams and how the dreams were premonitions so she had a witchy side to her which is probably some ancient gaelic thing that filtered down oh. so she wasn't in she's a bit uh she talked a lot about her dreams and premonitions so that's interesting too well and what's interesting uh when i hear you talk about her there's a few other women that you clearly have no no respect whatsoever for and um uh you're famous for for talking about the uh people wasting their lives and being insubstantial <laughs> shopping and, and when when a war is going on and things uh <laughs> Um, it's uh, oh yeah, maybe yeah. Well, maybe some people were they're shallow people and hardworking yeah. people. Yeah, it's nothing to do with it's just character or how they were brought up. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, you just have a, a who suffered. Oh, these people generally suffered in silence. That's why the letters are interesting. Uh, well, and that's your. Oh yeah, yeah. I wrote about my aunt. Oh, you. T- I know what you're. You do about. tell tell me. Yeah, that's my husband's other aunt who who was the first. First cousin of General MacArthur. My husband's grandmother was the first cousin of General MacArthur, Hardy from Virginia. And I, and uh, they were well-off young ladies. Uh, but they, I know they were sort of, I, from what I read, their letters are, I don't see any, they're not profound people. They were brought up socialites. So they, they were social butterflies. They were in all the newspapers. They cut it out. Miss so-and-so um, visited, uh, you know, uh, St. Louis and was fated by all the right people. And she's a wonderful ornamental girl. You know, the way that socialites, well, they're not encouraged to be very deep, these people, because their main job is to find a husband. Right. I guess, and nothing else. But it's important to have both sides. So, so I wrote about her in a kind of, I'm mocking Yeah, it was well, sure. It must, it's unfortunate for them. They're in a cage, right? They couldn't. And the only thing that usually breaks them out is somewhere, something, some war or something that would uh, stretch allow them to explore their other yeah the other side of their life they don't have to so yeah i do make fun of those people (laughs) they have no kids that's why i do it i only make fun of people who didn't create any children so i don't make fun of anyone's grandparents (laughs) (laughs) that's that's a point i make too or my Well, um, it's interesting too. You also did a book about um, World War One, uh, not born over here. What was the family that uh, you focused on in that one? It's the same family, uh, not Bo- yeah, not Bonnie over here. Do you know why? I, that's a line from a letter from World War One, where my husband's other great aunt Flora, obviously a correspondence with a soldier, and you know how they did it, and they're, they're helping this soldier get through. But she's saying she's going to go over and be a nurse. And he goes, don't come over here. It's not Bonnie over here. He's trying to warn her, right? That don't come over here. So Ah, not Bonnie yeah, over yeah, here. Not, oh, yeah, not, that's what exactly what he wrote. So not, you can't give the details, right? He's not allowed. But do not come to the front. So these letters are from actually continuation from 1914 to 1919. And they're wartime letters. So there were no men in their lives that uh, the husband, uh, there were no uh, direct ancestors who went to war. My husband's great uncle didn't go to war, although he kept complaining that he might have to. And uh, the grandfather didn't. He already was 40 and had three kids. So there's a lot of ways to get out of going to war back then. But they had a lot of acquaintances who went to war, many, many. Some who lost almost all the sons. And, and then if they didn't lose the sons to war, they lost the daughters to the flu. 
very sad situation. So I have these letters that talk about it in the context and it's everyday life, but they're more afraid. They're, they're building victory gardens. They're worrying about the war. They're not pro-war in any level. At least the father isn't. He's very anti-war. He says, oh, the leaders should just get together and work it out amongst themselves. So he's very afraid of losing their only son. Um, there's sad letters from American relatives who write long, long sad letters about how they lost their son, their favorite son. So it's, it's a lot of different letters. And then this everyday housekeeping type thing. But what you see is the women spend a lot of time. Um, this is my husband's great aunts. Um, spend a lot of time uh, working for Victory. It's called the Victory something, whatever, Victory League. They're helping soldiers. They're often nursing sisters. They're, there's constantly during the war with their work, with their own work as a teacher, and she was a secretary at Sun Life. They went and did a lot of volunteering on almost every, every front, these young women, uh, mostly helping soldiers rehabilitate or whatever. And... Uh, so you see they had a lot of sense of duty. But by the end, you know, by the end, it's over. And then when the war ends, it's like, oh, we're going to reupholstery our furniture. So it's like it's all forgotten and they're going back. They're worried, right, too, about the price of rising cost of food because it really went up, especially their staples, butter and stuff. So it's an wow. interesting picture of a middle-class Quebec family because, yes, the, yeah, yeah, well, you... the conscription crisis is discussed. <laughs> but... Um, um, how they dealt with war in everyday life without being soldiers, with just knowing soldiers. It's, it, it has it all. It has every aspect. But basically, life went on while, while it happened. Just life went on. Yeah. And they devoted themselves to volunteer work. As, as Yeah. Well, and the... So that's what those... Well, in reading your stories about these women, you do get not just a sense of, of a history. Sorry? Yeah. No, nothing. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, 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 go on. Oh, um, no, I was just saying, reading these stories about um, so much about um, what you write about uh, has to do with uh, different people. Um, it, it's really important what you what you're talking about because you're you're trying to show basic daily life, and so much of what we read in history is about the decisions made by uh, a very few, usually white men, um, that get us all into this trouble. But you don't see the reaction of the entire population, and, and the advantage of of focusing on women's lives and the day to day struggle is that you do see the ramifications of every decision yeah. on different I think it, on, on different levels of people. Yeah, it's looking at the, the big picture and little picture, and it's social history, and women have been left out. Now, of course, in the last little while, there's been more, because people have found usually diaries, is basically letters and diaries that tell the story. But their story is was completely overlooked on every level. So I, that's why genealogy is so wonderful. If you have letters, it's always amazing social history. Yeah, I mean, almost always, except for my husband. <laughs> Even in cases where you didn't have specific letters, what I like about um, some of your stories is you take a, a period of time and then a, and your knowledge about what was happening at that time, in part because of the letters, and then you uh, basically extrapolate what what the person in the situation probably was 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 thinking or doing and then you take all of these meeting minutes and combine it all together into a story like particularly you did that very well with some of the stories of the suffragettes um can you talk a little bit about your research into yeah. suffragettes 
Yeah, I can. Well, first I'll say, well, I'm, I've been an essayist for a long time, and it's very important. And when I'd write for online, I think I was one of the first paid writers on the net, maybe one of the last two. But uh, um, it's important not to be about you. When even writing genealogy, it's not about you or your family because no one's interested. So you have to actually find the, where the political and the personal needs are something for someone to relate to. So, or else it's meaningless, as you know, as a writer, right? You're not writing self-indulgent. I remember editors would often say, at least you're not self-indulgent. A lot of people are, I guess. But a lot of writers can be. Can be and then that's no good. Who wants to read that? So uh, the suffragettes was interesting in that, you know, I knew nothing about it. They didn't teach about it in school. I, I have Canada Then and All, a history book from that everyone in uh, Protestant Canada had for 40 years. Um, and it has nothing about them. It has a tiny bit on Laurier, the picture. So basically, I knew nothing. So what I knew was from the little bits I saw on TV, like down, uh, not Downton Abbey and Upstairs, Downstairs, and, you know, the cliches off the BBC. So I, from one letter, from one letter in um, Edith, Edith Nicholson, his great aunt's story, she's going to, said, in 1913, she wrote to her mother, said, I'm going to see Mrs. Snowden speak, but she is not militant, and for this, I am very sad. That line <laughs> led me to do enormous quantities of research to, again, I think I'm pretty expert in this. There's one other expert. Uh, it's not a subject many people do. Uh, so I, I looked, I just studied the suffragist movement in Montreal, which is to say not much of a suffrage movement, uh, to understand that actually in 1908, one of Mrs. Pankert's militants, Miss Sarah Kenny came to Montreal because she married a she married a Daily Mail reporter. They got in trouble at a rally, I think, was Winston Churchill was, and they had to scoot, and they came to Montreal and got married. I discovered that, and then her younger sister Carolyn Kenny uh, came in briefly in 1910 and tried to start a militant movement. But the fact was, Montreal's suffrage movement was extremely conservative and very much tied up in the English-French politics of the day. So they were very careful. Uh, the leader of the movement was a McGill professor, and many of them were, many of the movement's leaders were McGill professors, male ones. This is a female one, Carrie Derrick. But she was savvy. It was very, again, everything in Quebec is different. <laughs> so the suffrage movement in Quebec was very different. But that was, yeah, very different, yeah. And uh, although these women themselves were, were probably for the militants, but they couldn't say it. They had to be careful. So, it, so in Canada... The short of it is, in the States and in Britain, the suffrage movement was a very broad movement that encompassed working class, all kinds of people, whereas in Canada and Montreal, it was just an elite group. So Edith Nicholson, being a secretary at Sun Life, who had become a teacher at a private school in Westmount, she was allowed to be for the suffrage, but she wasn't allowed to join the movement. They didn't want young, quote, hysterical women women with high ideals. They didn't want them coming in and having marches. My God, they would have fainted. So actually, it was Carolyn Kenny who tried to start a march in Montreal to Ottawa. So this was very scary to people. So they were also ambiv ambivalent about Mrs. Pankhurst. Some people just despised her and hated her. And actually, Carrie Derrick and some women really liked her. And, and one Montreal woman, a wife of a Westmount businessman, she had gone to England and participated in these um, in these rallies by uh, the Kennys, where you know people were fainting and uh, 
from hunger, you know, the hunger strikes and the cat and mouse. So, so there were some underground suffragist, suffragettes who were the militant, but most people were suffragists. Right. And a lot of that was all about getting women out to vote in the municipal elections to get keep the French faction out. That's a whole other thing. Oh, <laughs> very complicated oh my gosh. Business. I mean, it's very complicated. Yeah, yeah. So they got all involved in civic because women with property could vote in municipal elections. So they didn't really want women to get the vote nationally, but they wanted them to use it at the city level to keep uh, cities clean, you know, from uh, vice and all that. So that's a whole complicated business. There's what we consider feminists today, they, these, these women generally weren't. Uh, the one woman who would be is a Canadian called uh, Denison, and she was a full-fledged suffragist in the way we would think of feminist today. She supported herself. She wrote. She was all for the militants. She was about the only one in all of Canada. Wow. Confusing. It's a confusing business if you're confused. Because it's confusing. <laughs> well, no, I just, I know that Quebec as a province got the vote later than the rest of Canada did. And I always wondered why. Um, and some of your work sort of shows, uh, you know, as usual, the family compact, which um, is, I think still exists today, basically um, moderated a lot of these kinds of uh, movements because so much of it was based on family and the link. Uh, um, one of the things that on the positive side of that, one of the things uh, that has also maintained in Quebec is the links between family members. Uh, this is one of the places where people are very happy to have conflict and, and live with it as part of their life and family members keep their influence, even if there's conflict in the family. So it's a it's a it's an interesting oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's an interesting dynamic and the suffragists I think is just another example of that. At least that's the intention. That's what I get from reading your work. I'm not an expert in this area. I just get to read you. <laughs> so well, actually, we I have one letter from the Nixon letters. It's from 1914, 15, or whatever, and they had a nosy neighbor who also spoke her mind. So apparently the. Uh, Oh, 1917. So it's when they're about to give women the provincial, the federal vote in order so that they'll vote in conscription. That's another thing. So they're having a rally in Richmond, Quebec, and with the MP from federal and the Quebec MP, and Mrs. and my husband's great grandmother is there because they're all proud of it because they say they're going to give women the vote federally. And then one woman, the neighbor, speaks up and says, "How come we're not getting it provincially either?" which is like rocking the boat and like saying a no-no, like she dared say it. And, and, and my mother, my husband's great-grandmother goes, we were all so embarrassed. <laughs> she wasn't supposed to bring up that. <laughs> yeah, and, and he said, oh, it's because of the Catholic Church. Isn't that funny? And she's like, yeah. So that was interesting too. So my, my It's because of what? Oh, the Catholic Church. Yeah, he blamed the Catholic Church. And then he just sputtered and said whatever he said. They weren't supposed to ask that question. That's the whole point. So even though she was a dyed-in-the-wool suffragette and loved Mrs. Pankhurst and stuff, she knew she instinctively knew that Quebec politics was different and you weren't supposed to ask too many questions and just come out for rallies. <laughs> I guess they were the... That's a whole other thing. My other book, um, Service and Disservice, that I wrote about the conscription crisis uh, using lots of newspaper articles. Luckily, I... Google News Archives was on a database. It was so easy to look it up. And so there I was able to decipher the mess of the conscription crisis and the involvement of the suffragists. 
Jets and including Carrie Derrick, the Montrealer across Canada. In other words, they were, the suffragists were mostly Protestants. So the promise was you can have the vote as long as we make conscription because the Protestants, uh, they were already sending their kids to war and they thought everyone else should too. So they wanted conscription. So they fought for conscription um, so that they could get, it was called partial, um, um, the partial vote. So it's, it's a, that's another complicated business. So only women with only, it turned out in 1917, only women with close relatives in the war got to vote. And a lot of people thought that wasn't exactly democratic. So, and that was the suffragettes. Wow. So it was like really it. tied to conscription. Very much. Oh, hundred percent. tied. To oh. That's why we got it. And they said, well, some people said, well, that's well, not great, but at least we'll get it later. And they did. And other people said, it's awful. It's, it's a, you're just trying to, trying to pull, get through conscription and you're using the vote. You're gerrymandering is what it was. And of course he was. It's a great gerrymandering time. <laughs> There's never been a better example of gerrymandering in Canada than that. That's all forgotten too. So no one, yeah. I'd never heard about that. And, and even it was the anniversary when I'd written the book, 100 years after, I thought media or people would be interested. No one was interested. And I didn't even see one, one tiny story anywhere about it. Sort of like that's not the history they want to tell. No, I, I've never even heard of that before. Yeah, I mean, I, I a, that's fascinating. Yeah, there's one a scholar has written a book, uh, Mothers of Men. Oh, I can't remember. It's a Canadian and Ottawa scholar. She's written about it, uh, about the conscription crisis very nicely and how women were turned into sort of um, tragic figures or martyrs, martyrs, mother of martyrs, mother of men is the name of the book of Suzanne. So, yeah, Suzanne yeah. Well, so many of us have the two solitudes yeah. uh, story in our head, right? And the woman in that one, um, there's one woman who actually, um, you know, the daughter of the main character basically uh, uh, reports the son of uh, one of the local French families, just emphasizing the English French divide. But they didn't emphasize the, um, you know, the, the Protestant. The, the, there was also um, mm -hmm. religious divides, not just language divides. The mayor was French, but they were really concerned. But, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of nice, not nice, not nice stuff underneath the surface. But um, what can you do? It was a time and place. Yeah. Well, and you're continuing to publish books and uh, stories on genealogy and some about that. But recently you've been um, exploring some fiction in uh, in a really interesting way. You did a fabulous narrative about um, an older uh, husband and wife dealing with dementia and uh, Alzheimer's. And uh, what got you interested in exploring that topic? Oh, what? What I've loved since 2006, BBC Radio 4 came online, and I fell in love with it. Uh, I was listening to every story they ever had, and they had a lot of money in those days, so it was a new stories every day. So I just fell in love with the genre of radio, radio drama. Not that I was a radio copywriter, and some people say it's sort of like a natural extension to be a radio copywriter, which is writing ads for 30 seconds to writing uh, radio drama of course i think it's a huge leap and takes incredible ability but anyway so after 2006 it came on or 2008 perhaps so i've been listening for almost 10 years um now they're cut back and they have a lot of reruns <laughs> but uh 
so I decided to try it myself, radio drama. And you know, I would really like to do that. If I could go back in time, <laughs> I, I go back to radio drama. There wasn't any, there hasn't been radio drama in Canada for a while, even though the CBC at once was a world leader, superior to the, to the British. Um, so it hasn't been a popular genre, but in England, it's still a very popular genre. And some of the best dramas, some of the best art I've heard in any genre has come from the the BBC radio uh, plays. They're just fat. This is fantastic. Mind bending. So I, there was a one of the idiot. It was just the best thing I'd ever heard. An adaptation of Dostoevsky's The Idiot. So I mean, that among many others, it was fantastic. What can I say? Well, it was gave me great pleasure for ten years. Well, I remember Peter Zowski when his when his uh, show was on. They did quite a lot of uh, radio drama. I mean, Stuart McLean made his uh, work on that. There was also a mystery series I used to love, and I think uh, that ended up creating Murdoch mysteries because it was very uh, close to oh, that and by the same writer. Um, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, it was pop, and, and it, the British admit that the Canadians were better. I have books by British writers who say, "Yeah, Canadian radio drama was a number one." So I guess I missed that. I never really heard any of it. Uh, well, I'm looking so, forward to your oh podcast God, exploring that side of things, Dorothy. <laughs> I'm exploring yeah, per, I'm exploring uh, profiles, but uh, we definitely could use some more uh, radio drama. I think that's a great and and your uh, your initial uh, uh, example yeah, my of that. Attempt on yeah, yeah, it was I fabulous. Was myself, I did. Real actors, <laughs> that'd be hard, and then direct them. When I worked yeah. in radio, I wrote the ads. There were some people there who were very creative, and they would, after hours, use the facilities to put on silly little radio dramas, radio comedies, usually, that often played on the TV. And these people went on to, to work in uh, writing TV shows and things, but I wasn't that uh, creative. I didn't, I wasn't part of that group, so I didn't get to do it. <laughs> Oh, well, you, you still have time. <laughs> I think, uh, like well, I said, that first one is fabulous. Thank you very much. You know, I, I feel that way too. You still have time. There's never, why should you stop trying to do something, what you want to do or learn something new? I'm all for it and I still have time. What I yeah. need is to get my husband on board because he's a technician and he'd be able to help me, but he's not that keen. Imagine that. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> well, he's also relatively <laughs> newly like retired, so he might still be in that honeymoon retirement stage that uh, where you don't want to do much, from what I'm told. Well, he wants to hammer, so hammer floors and hammer things. He, he doesn't want to work in what he used to work at because it was TV editing, right? So he doesn't want to be my editor. But anyway, I'll figure out a way. And besides, there's so many new devices and apps now. Soon, though, something it'll be idiot proof. I could be able to use it. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to it. And I definitely, I'll definitely link to that show, the radio drama that you wrote uh, in the show notes, because I think it's worth hearing. And well, it, very much. Yeah. it made me, uh, what I liked about it is it pulled you actually into the moment of people dealing with these kinds of issues like you, like most of your stories do. You're very good at pulling us into a particular moment in time. Yeah, well, I heard this, I took it from one anecdote where my great uh, my father's father, my father's father, my father's grandfather woke up one day and looked at uh, his wife and said, woman, what are you doing in my bed? And it's been a family myth. So, the, you know, funny, but not funny, he had Alzheimer's. 
And then I could use, because my own father got Alzheimer's, so I got firsthand experience. So I tried to use that kind of experience to figure out how it, she, they might have felt. Like, she's me. How I felt with my father is how my character feels with the husband. So uh, confused and upset, you know, depressed. And uh, trying to make the most, and trying to laugh at the same time, because you have to keep yourself sane. So, so that's why it might, I think, maybe... Uh, I achieved something good there because I sort of had, I had experience with it. Yeah. So, and plus you get to put in genealogy information. That's what I tried to also the, all the genealogy information is in there while they're talking. I'm explaining what I've learned from the internet, usually about these ancestors. I knew nothing about my father probably knew nothing about them except their names. So that's interesting too. These ones specifically were in Cumberland. So so I try to do that, mix the story with the information. But uh, I think I'm better at the information. It's hard to write a good story. It's hard to be a storyteller, isn't it? It is. And, and, and that is yeah. the big challenge of it. I mean, I'm, I'm also a researcher type writer. And it is it, telling the story is the first point or people don't get the rest of it. And so, um, I, I mean, working, I, I, I just think that that's a craft that you just have to develop for your entire life. I mean, it's it's a wonder. Some people well, are naturally yeah, yeah. good at that side, uh, and they're not so good at the research side. But that's why our group actually we should yeah. talk a little bit about our group. It's so invigorating to have so many different. We've got nine women, all with very different skills, connected together. We meet once a month. Uh, yeah, can you no, talk a little bit about so how you feel about that group? Oh, I think it's. I've been as a writer. You know, you're told to take a lot of courses. So I took. I've been in quite a few writing groups. I've never been in one like this. One where everyone is so talented, but actually where they grew, thanks in large part to you and Janice, the leaders, how they grew in their writing. And then they then once they grew in their writing, they started to express their own personalities and they're unabashedly. So the, um, so you get so many different styles. So some people are like Lucy, so creative. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> she's a creative person, right? She's coming out with a new way to say something, and it's uh, just wonderful. Uh, Sandra always does perfect stories that mix the big picture with the little picture, the political with the personal. But she's very succinct, and uh, uh, and that's great. it. Comes her business background, I guess. So I try to do that, but I go on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just find it, I, and I find every day, every. Uh, months when I read the stories, I just enjoy them all. They're all yeah. like fantastic social history. Bar uh, Marion, who wrote about her time in the RAF in the '60s, it's fascinating. I didn't know about that. I didn't know girls that the girls were just not running around with mini skirts and go-go boots. That some of them were actually entering the military and learning skills, life skills that would help them have jobs the rest of their life. That's fantastic. I was so I learned so much, and I love learning. Right? That, that's why. I, Writers tend to want to learn a lot, right? So every, I've learned so much, and it's all interesting. And, you know, I think everyone should be interested. Yeah, well, and because all of us are such strong writers now, every week you have, a, 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 you know, basically a bunch of different stories. In, in All of them are historical. We're all obviously history buffs, but they're so different. Some people are exploring fiction more. We've had poems. We've had... Um, uh, we have some beautiful, uh, I mean, and, and also then just the asides, you know, uh, 
Barb is one of the lead, the woman leaders in DKG, and we've been hearing about her explorer. So you just get the many different facets of what being a woman in Canada today is, and I just uh, oh, I just think that's fascinating as totally well. Enriched. No, we're enriched, and okay, there's lots of info on the internet, but why this group has totally educated us. We've educated each other. We've enriched each other's lives with funny stories and interesting anecdotes and you know i never knew that i never knew that i love it yeah i, I love it it's what a great way to learn you know what a great way to grow to have a club like we have yeah well and i I'm, I'm and because we're sharing our stories every single week on the internet as well we're actually working on what it means to try and express uh, things that are very important to us personally in a way that will encourage other readers to be interested as well. And so I think we're actually um, uh, part of the wave of new history writing. I mean, I, I, I really do. I think this is... Uh, that might be true, yeah. Yeah, it, that, might be tr- that might be exactly true. Very val- I, My books are used... Uh, it's not everyday people who read my books. No one cares, but academics do use them. And I've seen them in... Uh, in um, reports and all kinds of things cited so that you so that's who's using my book so it isn't that they don't think oh that's useless she's not an academic they actually find it interesting so the same with all our stories that people will use our stories to build on other their bodies of knowledge no question won't they yeah no no and 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 people who are maybe just looking into trying what what do i do with my family history research um, by trying to turn it into a story, you become a better researcher more than anything else, too. So Yeah, and you're invested. I think that's what, one of the reasons this group is, has um, grown so much, is that people are really invested in their stories. And if we, every student were as invested in their stories as we were, everyone would come out of school a great writer, right? It, it, you, they, we care about it, and we work hard on it. Part of it is trying to connect people with something that they care about first and then getting them to write about that. And that's not necessarily easy to do. And they always say, so. yeah, it's, it's very hard. So this gives us, oh, genealogy writing is perfect for that. It's ideal. They should, and I think they have experience, explored in schools having kids write about their ancestry. But uh, to mixed results, I guess. No time either. So actually, the 100th anniversary of World War I... Um, helped with that a lot. I saw some fabulous research projects coming out of schools because people took on, you know, individual soldiers or they took on, um, you know, a classroom would take one particular unit or something. And so I'm hoping that that kind of historical classroom management continues because it certainly has been interesting to read as an outsider. Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah. Have to get it on the curriculum. Uh, before we get to my final question, which is, talks about you as a Canadian, was there anything about your body of work that we didn't get to discuss? Because uh, I know you've done a lot of things that um, I might not be as familiar with. No, we did well. I, no, it was when, um, when I first started writing for the internet in 1997, I wrote family essays. So I used to write movie reviews from a kid's point of view, family essays. And then that parlayed in... Uh, into work for Chatelaine. And so I did both humor essays and both quote statistic anecdote essays. And uh, I prefer doing the humor ones. They're easier. They're easier in that I like doing them. So I work on them while I upset somebody. 
and then you're sitting there, a lonely freelance journalist without insurance or anything. You don't want it. I, had, I got myself in hot water a couple of times, but people, half the people love it, and half the people, oh my God. So uh, I, I, as much as I like it, I don't do it. I did a little bit, and I stopped. So humor essays, well, but another thing, I used to write satirical essays. I convinced them at Chatelaine or today's parent to write satirical but they yeah. don't go over well yeah yeah i don't understand that it's satire yep no? so i'd write a funny something that was clear to be very funny. oh they thought it was supposed to be truth oh dear yeah that's that's why they are reluctant to, to print satire without writing satire over the front page so people get it then they get a people all mad at them so i used to like that so when right. i wasn't versatile you have to be right uh, tracy to be a freelance writer especially in quebec you have to be versatile that's it yeah 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 well and and that's that's just that's the nature of the beast too it's true yeah, yeah, yeah. um but uh actually my husband says that there should be a satire meter <laughs> <laughs> or an irony meter you know so that people actually know what it is they're reading yeah, yeah, yeah. So they can... <laughs> jonathan yeah, swift off the oh. parts it's very weird what you think and is. so yeah so that's why i did and i wrote salon.com too i wrote some satirical essays there and I should have continued I had a chance to continue with them but I was in a bad space <laughs> I didn't want to deal with the American taxes but I really I did that so that was that was all around the 2000s I was very prolific then because my kids were old enough but not, uh, so that I could get some work done so that's basically it I've done everything in writing I have to well I know that uh, I'm hope I hope you'll also explore that uh, in future as well, because I just love reading your funny stories. You definitely are the uh, comedian amongst us. It's uh, oh, I like Mary. Mary has a droll sense of humor. It's more uh, subdued, but it's funny. <laughs> it's always entertaining to. S- <laughs> it's- and in our the final uh, question, as you know, is. Uh, um, basically do you consider yourself a canadian and if so what does that mean to you i do yeah um actually more than it, i consider myself a canadian i grew up i had a british father a french canadian mother i didn't identify with either of those groups you know i just i was a canadian on my street were people from india colombia uh, all kinds it was a kind of mixed street for some reason in, in snowden and so i got to meet people from all over in my class was I would say mostly Jewish with Greek, all kinds of people. So we were just Canadians. And then it was also the era of Bobby Gimby and Expo 67, where patriotism was, especially in the schools, was being uh, uh, promoted. And uh, the Bobby, you know, so I still get chills. Like a Canada song they used to sing, Canada, one little, two little, three Canadians. And then there was Expo 67, which was best time, best year of my life. I spent more time there than at school. My teacher said I could, and I it was amazing. So I was at twelve is a very impressionable age. So I got stamped with that kind of Canadianness, the, the centennial year Canadianness. Um, so I can't. I have to say I am. Uh, that's why I feel I'm Canadian. <laughs> How lovely! It's uh... and nothing else really. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you very much. I really appreciate exploring uh, your body of work and uh, uh, with you. And I'm looking forward to our next meeting at the, uh, in the Writers Group. Yeah. See you then. Thanks a lot.
Thank you for listening to Unapologetically Canadian. Please consider supporting our podcast for $2.99 a month. Join select listeners and get additional episodes every month. Experience the Jared difference. The best prices on an amazing selection. Select your diamond gift today from hundreds of styles they're sure to love. Jared. Love brilliant.